Take your Bibles. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 23 this morning. 2 Samuel 23. It is good to see you again. Uh, it is good to see Ed and Gisela with us uh, this morning. For those who were not in attendance with us last week, our attention was providentially redirected. This was God's design for us to the care of one of our church family facing a medical emergency. Ed invited me to share these comments with you this morning. Gisela has a favorite expression that applies to the very challenging event of Sunday last. Man thinks, but God directs. Gisela and I thought we were going to enjoy a time of worship with our brothers and sisters at Subaru Road. Pastor Jim would be continuing sharing lessons from 2 Samuel. Instead, the gathering turned into a great outpouring of love, prayer, and support for Gisela. The presence of the right people responding in seconds to an extreme emergency with the right medical skill meant that what could have been far more serious had a great outcome. That the right people were in the right place at the right moment is not a coincidence. It is clearly God's providence. Had Gisela's attack happened at many other places or times other than Sunday morning at Subaru Road, the result could have been very, very different. While Pastor Jim's planned sermon was not heard, instead there was a very powerful message about what it means to be a body of believers caring for a sister in great need. Our Lord answered an outpouring of prayers and Gisela is with us again here today. He says, Gisela and I owe a great deal to those who provided the incredible care that made all the difference. And yet this reminds us that whatever we think, whatever we plan, it is God who directs us. So we give him great praise for even that providential interruption of what we had thought would happen last week. I hope that would be an encouragement to you as we recognize that our God is supreme even in circumstances that we can't anticipate. One of our members said to me in 60 years of coming to church, I've never seen that happen where a service would be directed in that way. So we are grateful for how God um, has worked this week, even worked through what seemed like a crisis in that moment. Let's go now and turn our attention to 2 Samuel 23. We'll be looking at just verses 1 through 7 this morning. How do you feel about authority? That can be kind of controversial, can't it? Authority structures, leaders, we often have mixed feelings about them. Most people today seem to have a great deal of distrust in their authorities. That seems to be growing in our own nation. Often that can be for very good reasons. We don't understand why decisions are made or based on the information that we have at hand, we would have made a different decision. Sometimes we're given evidence, even proof of the misuse of authority. Yet God intends for authority to be a benefit to others and a blessing. In spite of all of the misuse of it, we see God intends for it to be a blessing. It's misused by sinful man. But that doesn't mean in and of itself it's wrong or bad or we can't ever trust it. I came across a moving story a couple of weeks ago demonstrating again how authority can be used for the good of others. 
When a New Mexico police officer responded to a report of theft at a convenience store, he had no idea that the call would change his life forever. The officer was dispatched to a local gas station, and once there, he noticed a couple shooting up heroin in broad daylight behind the store. The young woman who was injecting the drug into her companion's arm was pregnant. When this officer spoke with the woman, she admitted she was eight months pregnant and addicted. After he warned her of the dangers of doing heroin while pregnant, she told him that she desperately wanted someone to adopt her baby. In that moment, that officer, that authority figure, recognized a chance to do something incredibly unexpected. He offered to adopt that baby right there in that moment himself. He and his wife already had four children. When the baby was born, her new parents named her Hope. They had to endure the painful process of detoxing and withdrawals, but Hope eventually recovered and returned home to her new family. God intends for authority to be used for the good of his people. The question is, how do you view authority? What is shaping that view? Doesn't our view, doesn't our sight, doesn't what we consider to be right need to be adjusted, corrected, refined, based on God's word, Rather than our own perceptions, our own experiences, our own conclusions, or how our world tends to view it. In his final official words, David will highlight God's intention to bless his people through the coming of the perfectly righteous king. Authority is good in the hands of God. Let's look at our text, 2 Samuel 23. We'll read verses 1 through 7. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. When one rules justly over men. Ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men, are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Our text will teach us this morning that God demonstrates his gracious rule, his rightful use of authority in the lives of his people through his righteous king. Let's ask for his help as we look at the text now together. Father, we ask for your grace. We pray your spirit would open our eyes to the truths that he penned for us so long ago. So Lord, may the words that I say that are not helpful, that may not accurately reflect this text, may they fall to the ground and be unremembered. May they be forgotten. But may your word 
be clear. May our hearts, our eyes, our value, our worship be drawn again to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, David is acknowledging God's sovereign grace and placing him in such a unique position, the authority position, the the position of rulership, of kingship, when God chose him to be king. 2 Samuel 22 was focused on God as the true and righteous king of David and his people. That was David's song of praise. 2 Samuel 23, this poem here, focuses on the responsibility and privilege of God's king as ruler over God's chosen people. Godly leadership is both an obligation to God himself and a great responsibility to God's people. This morning we'll consider our text in three main sections. First, the God who exalts the humble. In verse 1 we're told these are the last words of David. Now there are his final public words. We can read of his last private words to Solomon before he dies in 1 Kings 2. These verses should be considered his last official statement for the benefit of God's people. In David's last words, we see him defining his entire life. Chapter 22 and 23 are looking back and saying, how, how do I see God at work in my life? This is a summary He defines his significance by his relationship to God. Not by what he's accomplished. He doesn't list out all those nations he's defeated. He doesn't list out how much is in the treasury. He doesn't list about how big his his kingdom has grown. He connects to the grace of God in his life. Now he provides a fourfold introduction to these final words that clearly explain again his relationship with God has shaped everything about him. David sees that all of life is all about God. And this passage invites us with David into evaluating our own lives. So if if you are with David and you're sitting hearing these words, how would you summarize your life thus far? If you're to take stock, what has your life been about? What is about right now? What have you seen God accomplish What would you list as successes or failures? How are those connected with your relationship to him? Do you see how this text encourages us to look at how our God has worked through every step of our lives, in every area of our lives? In verse 1, David describes what he is about to say as an oracle. That's an unusual word. We haven't seen that really before. What does that mean? Why does he use this word? An oracle here indicates that David is speaking as a prophet. This is not his word, but a word given to him from God. This is prophecy. So what we have in this statement then is not just a word where David's evaluating his own rule and summarizing it, but he's pointing forward to the greater future rule of his descendants, specifically of one descendant. Now, David first describes himself as the son of Jesse. We know his story as we've worked through these two books. He's the youngest son of Jesse. He's from an insignificant and obscure town in Bethlehem. Samuel would never have sought out this family unless God had directed him there. David was no one of consequence. He was from nowhere until God chose him to be the king. 
And remember, even when Samuel went to the home of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel, David's father did not even consider it worthwhile to have David at home when Samuel arrived. Remember, David was out in the fields tending the flock still. He wasn't even considered. Neither man, neither Jesse or Samuel anticipated that Jesse's youngest son would be chosen king. This is like one of those stories of an athlete found in obscurity, maybe in a foreign country where no scouts were looking. No one thought to consider that no one anticipated becoming this next superstar. You see, God delights to surprise us. He delights to use humble people. In Isaiah 66, 2, God says, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. We're told in Proverbs 3, 3, and this is repeated over and over in the Bible. To the humble, he, God, gives favor. David models for us humility here and in many other places in his life. We've seen that again and again in his life. He doesn't act solely for his own good in so many instances. He's not fixated on himself and what he wants others to think of him. He continually relates himself to God. He sees himself in his relation to God. Humility is not demanding to have it your way, to have it right now, making others see and hear you. Making sure others value you for your gifts and abilities. Jesus tells us that humility means that God gets my attention and my will. And others receive my sacrificial service. And whether I get position, recognition, affirmation is up to him. All of that is to be found in God. So are you cultivating humility in your own life? That's one of the major lessons that's been playing out. One of the themes that's been playing throughout the books of First and Second Samuel. We saw this first in Hannah's prayer. How do you cultivate humility? Look again and again at what he's done for you. Humility is found in looking away from self. Look at what he's doing now in your life. It's embracing that statement that John the Baptist made of Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. David next describes himself as the man who is raised on high. The significance of this statement is found in the passive verb. David did not raise himself. He was raised by someone else. That verb causes us to think, well, who did raise him up then? And we know the answer that David's pointing to. This is exactly the kind of reversal that Hannah had highlighted. He brings low, that's God, and he exalts. David continues, the God of Jacob anointed me, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The reference to the God of Jacob refers both to God's promises that he would bring a ruler from Jacob's family and highlights that this is the God of Israel. He's the king for the sake of of God's people. One author writes, the God of this people had anointed David as king for the sake of his people. We see David's serving God in three separate roles through these statements. And this is, this is important foreshadowing. Think of this carefully. David is serving God and his people as prophet, priest, and king. 
He's speaking the words of God. He's a prophet. That's the significance of this twice repeated word here in in verse 1. An oracle. Peter calls David a prophet who foretold of Jesus. David also serves as a priest of God by leading Israel in worship. That's what the title, the psalmist of Israel. What are those songs but leading God's people in worship? But in the very next chapter, in chapter 24, we'll also see David offering sacrifices for the atonement of sin. Now, we want to be careful. We're not saying he's operating as a Levitical priest would. But he does represent God's people before their God. And we obviously know that he served God's people as their king. Their greatest king. Now, why do you think this is significant? What is this pulling together for us? What is this telling us that this poem, this song, is really all about? Is it to highlight that David is saying, I was a great king? Or a great king is coming? One who will perfectly fulfill all three of these roles without sin, without failure. God intends for those in authority to exercise it in a beneficial way to others. We see a glimpse of this in David. And he, like a signpost, is pointing forward to an expression, the full expression of this in Jesus. Now in verses 2 through the beginning of verse 3, David next stacks four statements, one on top of the other, to demonstrate that what he is about to say is not from him, but is a word from God. He's saying, this, this is not my idea. These are God's words. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said. These are incredible statements claiming divine inspiration. They provide for us a fantastic description of why we should be confident that the book you hold in your hands is life-changing. They're not the mere words of a man. Even a great king who we might learn some wonderful life lessons from. That's not what this is. But through these recorded words of man, God still speaks. Now why is he so adamant at this point that we know what he has said and is about to say is from God? I think this is getting to the heart of what's happening in these seven verses. David's point, at least in part, is that we must set our hope and confidence in God. Even though these are his last words, even though they're summarizing his life in connection to God's sovereign grace, they're not pointing at David. He's telling us the way to interpret 1 and 2 Samuel is to see God as the primary actor, as the true king. He's telling us to look away from human leadership. Don't put your confidence there. No man, not even David himself, will ever perfectly lead us in the way that this text says godly rule should. And again, we know this, don't we? We know this. Our hopes are dashed when we think, maybe if we get the right leader in place, and then they they reveal to us that they're human, that they're mere mortals. Isn't that what troubles us most about the organizations, the institutions, the human leadership that we're a part of, that we're under. Human leadership will always be tainted by selfishness and sin at some level. This was demonstrated in my mind so well when we were in Togo just a few weeks ago. 
I saw all the poverty and inefficiencies of a third world country. In some ways, it was more widespread and worse than I'd seen in other trips that I'd taken. Your mind immediately wonders, why is this country like this? Who would want to live like this? When you see an idea somewhere else of a country living in greater freedom and prosperity, wouldn't you want to be like that? So why not work toward that? You wonder, how has their country become so trapped in poverty and ours has so much prosperity and even excess? Of course, there's no way to understand all the factors that shape another nation like this in just a few days of visiting. But being in another country naturally brings this comparison to mind. At least one major factor that was made clear is the difference in leadership. When talking with one of the nationals, he explained just how corrupt the current leader is. And this is a free country in a relatively stable country in Western Africa. This man is known to have many, many women that are considered his wives. And literally, he has scores of children. The stated term of office is five years. He's been president for 15 He has property on the highest point in the country, symbolizing his importance. And yet within eyesight of that compound, those Africans he was elected to serve live in extreme poverty. He's using authority to benefit self. Certainly this is an extreme example of a selfish misuse of power. But unfortunately it's not that uncommon, is it? We should respond to these truths, though, in two ways. First, we are to continue to place our hope, our focus, our confidence in God. In whatever authority you're under, that's where your hope is to be found. When we are troubled and dismayed by news of corruption, mismanagement, and wickedness in our leaders, we should pray. Pray for our country. Pray for our leaders. Pray for those under their influence. But second, rather than just casting stones and saying this is a problem, we need to look at how we're influencing others. This should humble us and remind us we have influence and leadership. And how am I using that authority? I'm a sinner too. Where we have influence, we should recommit to leading in a godly way. Where can you benefit those underneath of you? His word is what brings stability, David says. So we're to measure ourselves both in how we lead and how we follow by that standard. Secondly, the God who keeps his covenant. Beginning in the second half of verse 3, we see what David has been building to. The first two and a half verses have formed this kind of extended introduction. He's stacking. It's, It's meant to crescendo. We now come to the focal point of David's divinely inspired prophecy. A better king is certain to come because God promised it he would. He affirms its certainty again at the end of verse 5. For he, God, has made an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? And there he's referring back to what we just had read in 2 Samuel 7. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis states how welcome this note of certainty how welcome it should be for the people of God. One could not look at the flux and flops of history and deduce that a righteous ruler over mankind is coming to reign. 
Our world seems to be plunging to chaos rather than rising to civilization, wallowing in oppression rather than finding justice. We could never infer kingdom hope from personal experience. The word justice has been co-opted by everybody. And they use it to bludgeon people who don't think like them today. How do we know what real justice is? It's found here. It's found here. God has provided us a word of hope. In verse 3, we see that godly authority will be characterized by two things. Did you see it? He says, first, it is leadership controlled and shaped by the fear of the Lord. Second, it upholds justice for those, for the benefits of those being led. One writer aptly notes, fear of God and justice are understood as related and mutually dependent. He's saying you can't have one without the other. It is only the one who fears God who can be a truly just ruler. And it is impossible for someone not prepared to fear God to be a just ruler. So rather than knocking at the authorities that you don't like, again, evaluate your own life. Mom and dad, is this your measuring stick? Are you leading in your home in the fear of the Lord? Teaching them justice according to God's definition or the world's? In verse 4, David describes the blessings, the benefits, the overflow of what godly rulers produce. He gives us three pictures. He dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. There's health produced. There's flourishing all around godly leadership. This picture of blessing reminds us of the beauty and goodness of God's creation in Genesis 1. When God says he saw it and he said it is very good. It's like the beauty of a morning right after creation. It's just beautiful. It's unstained. It's untainted. There's peace. All three of these descriptions are necessary for healthy growth. And the same is meant to be true. It's a picture of our leadership. Godly authority is designed by God to be a blessing, a gift. So authority is not inherently a curse. The Bible does affirm living under an ungodly authority is. But ultimately, all authority is under the hand of God and we can trust him. Think of it, by our use of authority, we can either encourage people to run to God or run from him. Parents, husbands, leaders at work, do you realize you can point people and encourage them to run to God by the way that you use your leadership, your authority, your influence? Or you can give them a very bad view of the ultimate authority in life. A godly leader must hold very deep convictions that he is standing as a representative under God's authority. And to misuse that authority is to misrepresent him. This is a huge issue. Think of that as a parent. You're misrepresenting God when you misuse your authority. You better be very clear as to how God intends you to lead in your home, at work, among the people God's given you influence. 
Men, take very seriously the responsibilities you've been given to lead and shepherd your wife with godly, humble, other-centered authority. The world says, I am dominating with the influence I have. Authority in the Bible says, I serve out of love and kindness and gentleness for your good. I'll even sacrifice for your good. I'm the first man through the door. I've heard that one good way to demonstrate this is not to issue orders or demands, but take initiative with the word let's. Let's make more time to focus on our walk with God together. We need to grow together. Let's work on that. Let's spend a few minutes together with with the family each night in the word and prayer. Let's talk about where we need to grow in order to strengthen our marriage. Let's talk about where we can better be serving others. It says, come along with me. When we misuse the leadership roles that we've been given, we may be helping those under our leadership to excuse away godly submission. Now, there's no excuse for that. Even in 1 Peter, we see we can submit to ungodly rulers because we recognize God is the supreme ruler. But in a human way, we're tempting people to disobey God. Leaders who fear God know they cannot do whatever they please. They're accountable to a higher authority. Do you hold that conviction? Husbands especially, men, when you are selfishly passive, resigned from leadership, or arrogantly pushy, you are not representing your God and the way he leads his people. Godly leadership, this passage says, has so much potential to do good. To be a blessing, to encourage growth in godliness. So I'd ask you, for what are you sacrificing this incredible opportunity? Another pay raise, a bigger bank account, more status in the world, more things. Is it worth it? Where are you being selfish and misrepresenting God to those around you? Look at the beautiful fruit of godly leadership in this passage. It's compelling. It's winsome. It makes you eager to follow. Ask God to give you the grace to steward authority like that. You'll never be the perfect leader. But we can look to him ourselves and point others faithfully to him. We can model humility and repentance and forgiveness. This too is absolutely vital to your leadership. Are you doing that? Where in your life do you have the opportunity to exercise godly leadership? The key to David's success as king, as a leader, as a ruler, was that he knew God personally. He held that conviction clearly in front of his face. God's word dwelt in his heart. David saying in chapter 22 too, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The depth of his relationship compelled him to rule justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. The same then is true of parents, pastors, teachers, coaches, and leaders. In every other sphere of life, the state of our relationship with God will determine how we relate to other people. In order to lead in the fear of God, you have to be growing in the fear of God yourself. Are you? 
Listen to how Jonathan Edwards describes the beauty and benefits of how God, how Christ reigns in righteousness. This is what we're compelled by here in 2 Samuel. He summarizes godly, Christ's godly leadership this way. The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end. That the eternal son of God might obtain a spouse. The church. His people. Towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence. The kindness of his nature. Notice he says the infinite kindness And to whom we might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart. And that in this way, God might be glorified. Do you see how God leads in your life through Christ? He's saying godly leadership gives glory to God. In verse 5 now, we notice the magnitude of God's grace again. The phrase here at the beginning of the verse can be difficult to translate. There's differences of opinion. The ESV reads, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. But the King James and the New King James reads, Although my house is not so with God. He's saying, it's failed. I have failed. I've not been perfect. I've not been like I just described godly leadership is. And then he continues, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. I think that second translation is actually preferred based on the context of what we've seen in David's story and what we saw in his poem in chapter 22. The future of David's throne is not well ordered. It's not secure because David is such a good and godly king. It's ordered and secure because the promise of God Because he made a covenant with David. The beauty of God's promise to David was that God made it in spite of what he knew David to be like. Again, here we have the mystery of sovereign grace. David doesn't deserve a promise like this. He can't keep his end of the covenant, but God will keep it for him. And in spite of him. It's a covenant based on the righteousness and faithful of God. And that then, that revelation, it demands a response to pursue again. Can I encourage you in whatever leadership role you've been given to embrace this, this mindset of humility and dependence? Find your stability in your God, not in your own personal giftedness, abilities, experiences, or accomplishments. David was an incredible leader, humanly speaking, but he accomplished nothing of truly lasting value apart from God's good hand in his life. And that's what he's pointing us to. God gave him victory over his enemies. God chose him out of nowhere to be the king. But don't miss the responsibility you have to respond to God's grace. To whom much has been given, much will be required. It's required in stewards, those who have been given gifts and abilities and responsibility. It's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Thirdly, our last point will be brief, verses 6 and 7. This final section provides then a warning to all who refuse to follow God's king. Verse 6 calls them worthless men or men of Belial. Every time we've seen this description used of someone in First and Second Samuel, we've seen it appear occasionally. It's used of a person who opposes God and his king. 
And ultimately, God is the one who will deal with these rebels in the end. They will be utterly destroyed. That's our confidence when we see wickedness in other leaders. It's not that we set them right. How do we do that? It's that we hope in the God of justice. Again, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Godly leadership should continually stand opposed to evil men. When David served as a righteous king, he saw to it that evil men were cast aside like these brambles, these thorns. I have this fantastic rake at home with metal, iron, tines that deal great with thorns like this that I don't want to get near lest I get poked. They rip them out by the roots. They cast them away. A just and righteous ruler is zealous to see evil purge from his realm, even through the use of deadly force. David could only do this so well as a sinful king. We know he sinned. He even caused judgment to fall on God's people. We'll see that again in chapter 24. But David's imperfections, again, David is doing this on purpose in this seven verses. He points us directly to Christ, who will one day execute perfect justice. Jesus says so in Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where, they will, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this warning is again a kindness because it urges us to avoid this fate. It calls us to examine Where does this leave you? God's kingdom has boundaries. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles. They'll do many signs, splendid things. But that's not, that's not Christianity. That's not a relationship with Christ. He says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The point that Jesus is making there in Matthew 7 that David makes here at the end of 2 Samuel 23 is that your eternal future is directly affected by how you respond to God's king. The Matthew 7 passage is frightening because many will try to argue their way into heaven because they're religious. They call him Lord. They're positively inclined to him. They've done many spiritual acts. But like the Pharisees who are incredibly religious and even the demons who openly profess that Jesus is the Son of God, they failed to submit to him as king. This passage calls us to trust in God's righteous king. Now, I know you've heard this many times before, but everything rides on this. Consider in this moment, again, your relationship to God's king. Are you trusting in God's righteous king in this moment for eternal salvation? In a congregation this size, I can't help but think there's at least one who has said for years, he's, he's my Lord, he's my Savior. 
but their life looks nothing like a follower of Jesus Christ. Their heart is far from him. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. Is he your king? Are you following him or seeking to rule on the throne of your life? All of your life is struggling against the way that he's designed for you to live under his authority. Are you deceiving yourself into thinking that you belong to his kingdom because you're favorably inclined to him? You're good with saying Jesus is a savior. He's the savior. But you don't bow the knee. Is he your king? Hear the words of Paul in Acts 16. When the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord. That word means king. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, and you will be saved. He is the perfect ruler who fulfills this beautiful picture of what it's like to live under his rule. He alone is worthy of our ultimate trust and submission. J.L. Reynolds, pastor in the mid-1800s, wrote, When Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king. He pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim. They presented him with a crown of thorns, a reed, a purple robe, and nailed him to the cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was the king. A higher power resided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power. And that cross, the throne of dominion, which shall never end. Do you see your king willing to suffer under unjust authority that you might reign with him forever? Trust in God's righteous king. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice.